In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was to go. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You're all very welcome to our podcast today. Still, unfortunately, in the absence of Father Gerard, but he'll be back with us soon. He's making a fantastic recovery. Thanks be to God and his mother. I began there with a quotation, famous quotation from the letter to the Hebrews and its mysterious author. Was it Paul? It's Pauline in much of its content, but not in its style. Or was it as a brilliant disciple of Paul? And it's the famous chapter 11 where the author of Hebrews looks back to Genesis and to specifically the patriarchs and specifically to Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed. He was called out. No small thing for an ancient person, no small thing to be called out of your familiar land and away from your people. That was a terrible wrench. Even today, it would be quite a wrench. The, the, the tribute in Hebrews is a tribute to Abraham's ability, so to speak, to walk on water. He is a type of Jesus in so many ways. To walk on water in the sense that he puts his reliance on God's word and God's goodness. And this is seen most acutely in the famous Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac where Abraham is willing to offer his son up to God, although not having the faintest idea why this had to be done, but trusting only in God's purity and goodness. I worked years ago in a boarding school, before I became a priest. I worked in a boarding school later as a chaplain. It was one of our own Catholic schools. This boarding school, it was back in the 80s, it was a Church of Ireland boarding school, lovely place, real apprenticeship to the, to the great teaching profession. But they had an ethos there, very similar to the one that the, the Catholic priests who had taught me had and the lay teachers who had taught me had. And the ethos was that you put in extra time and you helped out in the boarding in the evenings and you put in the time. Boarding was all spending time. It was a huge, luxurious, as it were, profligate expenditure of time on students, a pouring of time into students. And as a result, more often than not, they blossomed. They were finding it even in the 80s harder and harder to get young teachers who, as the deputy principal once put it to me, would keep the faith, who would believe in this philosophy of the extra mile, of extra time, of extra time in the evenings and time at weekends. Really, truly a vocation. And one friend told me of another Church of Ireland school in the area where they had been conducting interviews. It was the principal who told him this story. And a very fine young man had shown himself the most promising candidate. And the board had, had turned out lately unanimously, without discussion, in their minds decided that this indeed was their man. And towards the end of the interview, as he was about to go, having swept the boards and made a powerful impression, they stood up to shake hands and the headmaster mentioned to him, conversationally as it were, you know what kind of school we are and of course you'll, you'll give us a hand in the evenings and at weekends. 
And the young man stopped. He looked at him and he asked him what he meant. So the headmaster, slightly flustered, explained what he meant. And the young man said, Oh, you don't want a teacher. You want a blanking monk. And he turned and walked out. <laughs> and the story passed from hand to hand, so to speak. It was a very amusing story, which summed up really the problem of the life. We're talking in the context of faith. We're talking in the context of vocation. We talked about the priesthood. Today I want to talk about another vocation, a very ancient one, one that is absolutely crucial as well to the church's life and typical of the church's life. If you look around our country, you notice that it is full of picturesque ruins. A friend of mine whose mother was Spanish said that his Spanish, he was a priest and he's, he's dead now, but he, he, his Spanish relatives used to be absolutely flummoxed when they would come to Ireland because they had never seen ruined medieval buildings before. Spain was full of medieval buildings which were perfectly intact and still in use. And of course a lot of the, the ruin goes back to the Reformation and to the closure of the monasteries. You had the same thing in, in, right through England and the ruins are actually far more impressive in England. The English church was so much wealthier. So we're, we're, we're full of runes to the extent that uh, Augustus Welby Pugin, the architect and the famous neo-Gothic revivalist in the 19th century, who carried out a number of great commissions in Ireland, I think he regarded Killarney Cathedral as, as one of his finest churches, if not his perfect church. Pugin remarked that he could not understand why he was receiving commissions from the Irish to build churches. And he asked rhetorically, why do they not restore the magnificent ruins that dot their landscape instead of bringing me over to reinvent the wheels, so to speak? So the ruins are the ruins to quote, is it Shakespeare? Bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang, yeah, where the monks chanted. They think that's what that meant. They think. It's a coded reference, maybe. Now, if here in County Mayo, go up to Ballina and take a turn to the left. You can visit Moyne Abbey and Rosirk. Both of them built, not even for Franciscan priests, not even for Franciscan brothers, but for tertiaries, for lay people who were following the Franciscan charism. And they're magnificent buildings. The Franciscan buildings have weathered very well. They're in great shape. There's another lovely one, Ross Erily, near Hedford. There's a fine one, but it's more ruined outside Clare Galway or actually in Clare Galway, sorry. Ballantubber Abbey, quite near us, was Augustinian. Uh, so it wasn't, strictly speaking, an abbey. You know, abbeys tend to be Benedictine. So they're the ruins of people following a very particular kind of life and different interpretations of a very weird kind of life. These magnificent ruins. And at the centre of these ruins often is a cloister. It's square because the, the plan of the Roman house survived in the plan of Catholic monasteries. They were built around an internal atrium, like a garden with a covered walkway called a cloister. And you find one of those in every single abbey and friary and monastery. The one in Ross Erily near Hedford is uh, comparatively primitive but perfectly intact whereas often they're partly ruined. What is called the religious life, the life of perfection. Now, traditionally, it's been held that diocesan priests like me have a place of great honour as priests, but our life is not the perfect life. The perfect life is the life where you put, if I may be crude, all your money on the horse. Absolutely everything, including the shirt on your back. The lot.
Now, in the scriptures, you see our Lord Jesus Christ being sought out by the people and being sought out by people who want to follow him. But if you notice, his disciples are those he chooses. He seeks them out. He calls them. So you have different levels of what is called election. God called the Jews. In Jesus Christ, God called everyone as he had promised to do right from Genesis on. He called everyone. And then within that call, some are called to various different ways in ascending orders of perfection of living out this life of following him. And traditionally the church has believed that there is none more perfect than that in which you give up everything to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. You walk away from your fishing boats and your hired men. You don't ask for your tunic back. You turn your other cheek to the man who has struck you. You only have one pair of sandals and one tunic. You carry nothing with you for the journey. This is called the way of perfection, the life of the evangelical councils. Now they're councils because our Lord Jesus Christ makes clear, and this is clear for instance, one of the famous locations for this is, is Matthew 19. And our Lord makes clear there uh, that you can be saved without following this life. But this is the perfect life. You remember where he says to the young man, the young man says, well, what must I do to be saved? The rich young man. And our Lord Jesus Christ says to him, follow the commandments and so on. And he says, I have, I have, I have. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. He had done everything necessary for salvation. One thing remains, he said. And this the young man could not do. He couldn't do it. And he walked away sad. He didn't need to do it for salvation, but he did need to do it to follow his vocation and the path of perfection in this life. A perfection of life, because we are not perfect. The evangelical councils, well, they were eventually systematized into poverty, chastity, obedience. Originally, the Benedictine monks took obedience, stability of life. Diocesan priests take promises, not vows, but as the theologian Vald Balthazar in his book, The Christian State of Life, great book, he points out, and as canonists will tell you, are they? there's not really much of a difference. If you promise something to the bishop before God, well, promise, vow, those are legal niceties. Okay, you've done it. You said your words. So diocesan priests, we take obedience and we take celibacy. The religious take poverty, chastity and obedience. Now what's the difference between chastity and celibacy? Well, it's again a theological nicety, but it's an important enough one. Chastity is a more all-embracing and thorough and complete commitment. Celibacy has the implications of chastity in that you do not take a wife and therefore are bound to chastity like everybody else. But the religious takes chastity directly as an all-encompassing, not as an implication, but as a direct commitment, an all-encompassing rule of life and poverty. So you do not own the shirt on your back. You adopt poverty. Now there is a difference, and I often say this to young people, and I was talking to a young person quite recently, again, they may well be listening to this. I often say this to young people. You know, a young man may say to me, well, I'm thinking of the priesthood, and if it's not the priesthood, it'll be the Franciscans. If it's not the diocesan priesthood, it'll be the Jesuits. You need to be a bit more thorough than that. You're choosing two very different styles, kinds of life. 
archaeologically. One is the path of the consuls. In the other you become a priest, but you're a secular priest and you remain living among the people without a vow of poverty. You get a salary. Do you see where I'm going? How much of a distinction is there? Von Balthasar brings this up and that he points out, which is very reasonable, that really if you're going to be a very good priest, you end up pretty much <laughs> living the rules you didn't adopt. <laughs> because you just end up imitating him, capital H, imitating him more and more and more. And so you have the Cure d'Ar, for instance, John Vianney. Now, personally, I find John Vianney's level of, of poverty as repulsive nearly, you know, personally. I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest, okay? I, I, I would find that very hard. Like, I think he lived on cold spuds. Apparently, you can live on it. I mean, my ancestors lived on it. Well, probably warm spuds. But, <laughs> I mean, I love my grub, okay? I would find that very difficult. And he gave away everything he had. But I know diocesan priests who have done this. And I know diocesan priests who have done exactly the opposite. And then I know mediocre, half and half, tepid glasses of warm water priests like me. Who have a little bit in a poverty and a little bit in a property. And a little bit in a this and a bit in a that and a bit in a the other. And I figure that I am going to get the finest feed of purgatory anyone ever got. That won't be a bit in. That'll be the first big thing. I'll achieve. A friend, I've had furious rows about this with a priest friend of mine. But I have to say, the more I read, the more I look into it, is to my <laughs> disgust, he has a point. We don't adopt the consuls. But if you want to be a really good priest, you inch more and more probably towards them. And I'd, I'm not sure how you do that. But you do end up doing it. You inch more and more towards them. Yeah, you start to worry more and more about that which holds you back. You know, there you go. So this today is the life of the councils. It's the path of perfection. Now, here's something you may not realize. The people you call nuns, the people you call brothers, the people you call sisters are lay people. They are not clerics. Clerics are a different order in the church. And here's another interesting thing. Catherine Macaulay, I'm open to correction on this, but I think I'm right. Catherine Macaulay, the founder of the Mercy Order, gave the fecundity of the Irish Church. You see it in its day. I mean, Macaulay, Nagel, Rice. You see these people? These are giants. And I know there's a dark side to that history and charism, as there is to our ministry. But, oh, what they achieved. That vision of simply dedicating themselves to teaching and to teaching the poor. Tremendous vision. And interestingly, every single one of those three came from money. They all came from money. This is what I'm saying. It's from the middle classes the leadership comes because they have time. Not because they're better or brighter, but because they have time. If you're poor, you're living on your wits the whole time. And it's harder to lift your head and look at the stars. So we're looking here at the life of perfection. We're looking here at the life of Catherine Macaulay. Macaulay didn't want to wear a habit. I think Nagel was the same. They, they, they were reverend gentlewomen. Mercy sisters were referred to as missus in the 19th century. As indeed diocesan priests were called mister. I would have been called the reverend mister. I see letters in the Archbishop's archive from the 19th century. Letters to parish priests addressed to the reverend mister so-and-so. It was religious who are called father because the people liked them better and thought they were holier. I'm sure maybe they were. 
Yeah, it was, it was these cuddly little Franciscans, these furry little Franciscans running around the place. Everyone loved them. And the Irish loved the Franciscans. They have a love affair with that order. They adored the Franciscans. If you feel a vocation to follow Jesus Christ, have you considered how you want to follow him? And if you remember what I talked about the last day, you'll know that that question always leads, if you have faith, it will lead to, how does he want me to follow him? What's he asking for? And if he's asking for you to follow the path of the evangelical councils, to follow him in the spirit of Matthew 19, then you have my sincere sympathy. You're a credit to the parish and we're all so proud of you. Pass the popcorn. We'll sit back and watch the fireworks. That's not an easy life. St. Alphonsus Liguri said the greatest crucifixion in his life, and he suffered a lot, the great moral theologian, greatest crucifixion in his life. What was it? Community life. Most of us and priests are happy to be living on their own. Everyone has great sympathy for us because they think we're so lonely. But most of us are actually, we are, by our nature, we're kind of entrepreneurs. Does that make sense? We're sort of Wild West characters, or at least that's how we'd like to think of ourselves. We like to kind of batter off on our own. Now, it's a huge weakness in that because sometimes then when things don't go well, we flounder, you know? Whereas the religious have each other. They live in community. I want to go back to the beginning of this. That means going back, oh, that means going back to a very serious dude. But a good story about the diocesan priests and, and cowboys, which is exactly how the religious regard us. Uh, I came across in the Catholic directory, I think it was for the, in the 1840s, uh, a letter from John McHale, the then famous Archbishop of Tum, and he had written to the Catholic Directory and asked them to publish his letter, rebutting claims that had emerged in the press during the year that priests in his diocese had been known to mount the sanctuary and the pulpit in spurs. <laughs> you can be sure that's exactly what they were at. <laughs> These guys were on horseback from church to church. And they were getting down off the horseback. They were half dead and covered in dust and muck. They were racing in, throw on the vestments, clank out onto the altar like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and they'd say mass with the spurs. The spurs still on them. And obviously some, probably some visitor from Dublin or England has seen this and been horrified at this country bumpkin of a parish priest. So there you have it. The, re the religious were regarded as a cut above. We were definitely the plotters. So we go back to the beginning of this religious life. Well, you have it in the Egyptian fathers. It started very early. And of course, they went out into the, the desert not to flee from the world simply, although Fuga Mundi, the flight from the world, is a part of the monastic, the monastic vocation. Which the, those are the religious who stay together and pretty much stay in one place. And their lives really are lives of prayer all the time. They're contemplatives. And the Egyptian fathers, they had a big influence on the early Irish monks. And the early Irish monks were the glory of the Catholic Church for centuries. Ireland really played a blinder for a few hundred years and maybe never as great again. The land of saints and scholars, which we were. Uh, monasteries in Ireland with hundreds, even a few thousand monks maybe. Uh, monks from abroad, uh, monks from England. Several places in the West are called Chalk Saxon, the Saxon house, because Saxon monks were living there. They were coming over to study here at the great Irish spiritual masters. People like Jarlath and Clune Fush and so on. Enda of Arne. These people were the great masters. And they were known right across the British Isles. 
And these people felt called to go out to the loneliest, scariest, strangest places and just live lives of prayer, living the evangelical councils, owning nothing, living lives of pure, complete chastity. Now, that's never perfect, I admit that. And the Irish monks, like the Egyptian monks that they, they admired so much, they practiced ferocious penances. They would think nothing of, if they were tempted by lust, they'd just strip off and jump in an icy pool. And, and that would cure the lust. Now, they might be dead after it, but uh, an English Benedictine I knew commented rather superciliously, I thought, that of course, <laughs> he, he said the, the Irish were reading the Egyptian fathers, but they, they didn't realize that jumping in a pool of water in Egypt and jumping in one in, in Antrim really has quite different effects. <laughs> That's the English for you. They annoy us. <laughs> They're always so perfect. Because, of course, England was, oh my God, the, the English Catholic Church was just magnificent. The, the loss of England to, to the Catholic Church was a huge tragedy for Ireland as well. So they were doing this from early in the church's life. And then the great Benedict, at a time of great dissolution and great trouble in the church, the great father Benedict founded a way of life that had a huge effect on the Catholic Church and on Western European civilization. And his monastery spread all over Europe and his rule was followed. His humane and wise rule for monks was followed. His way of perfection. And then you had the Irish monks who didn't belong to any of these orders. Um, and some of, uh, quite a few of them went off to the continent. Actually, it was a problem that so many went. It would, they, it would, they called it white martyrdom. Not red martyrdom, where you spilled your blood, but white martyrdom, where you did like Abraham. You gave up your place in your people. You never came back. And so Columbanus is regarded as the father of Europe, as a concept. Columbanus, who just went around founding monasteries in a way that even Benedict didn't do. And he's buried up in Bobbio, in the north of Italy. And the Italians are very conscious of him. He's buried in a fine medieval tomb. I was there once for his feast. A fine medieval tomb. In, in the last monastery he founded and where he died, in Bobbio. Columbanus had a rule as well for the religious life, for, for the monastic life. It was more severe probably, but it was Benedict's that won out. Benedict's was the most balanced and it was the most popular. And then again, there's a very, very crude outline. I mean, this got developed big time then by the, the, the incredible Francis in the Middle Ages, you know, 12th, 13th century. And if you go to Subiaco, to Benedict's monastery, Subiaco, you can see a photograph of St. Francis. What do I mean by that? You can see a painting of Francis, a fresco, almost certainly painted while he was still alive. Because of course he was, he was a superstar, <laughs> even while he was alive. The little, the little spiritual Charlie Chaplin. Little tramp. And a lot of people misunderstand Francis. Francis, oh, Francis was a great religious. Francis wasn't poor. Francis adopted poverty. Lady poverty, as he called her. But he wasn't poor. Francis came from big money. Father made a fortune as a cloth merchant in Assisi. They, they, they weren't nobility. They would have liked to be nobility. But they were a part of what we would now call the emergent middle class. The Bernardones. And, and, and then you've Dominic, Dominic de Gutmann. Um, I think Dominic was, was an aristocrat. I think, I think, I think. A Spanish who founded the Dominicans and the Dominicans, the Franciscans, 
you know, oh, they, they went around and preached and they worked for the poor, but they rapidly also produced great theologians like Bonaventure and the like. And then the Dominicans, I mean, the Dominicans were so exciting that they attracted Thomas Aquinas, who had been sent to Monte Cassino, no less, the great Benedictine Abbey, where his family, his noble family, intended that he would become, a mo- become abbot to the glory of his family. And instead of that, he left to join the hippies because that's how those new orders were seen by the old established Catholic aristocrats. The Franciscans, the Dominicans, the idea that their son would join one of these outfits, their daughter, instead of making a good marriage or if they wanted the religious life going into a wealthy abbey, but instead becoming a little beggar, running around the roads, singing hymns and converting people. I mean, one just didn't do that kind of thing. So Thomas's family locked him up, I think for about a year, and only gave in very grudgingly to his wish to be a Dominican. Oh, you had these amazing charisms. And then in the late Middle Ages, you know, you had books coming out like the Imitatio Christi, the Imitation of Christ, which was basically saying, you know, maybe you don't even have to be religious to do some of this. And then you had tertiaries, you know, you had third orders of lay people who'd say the office and they'd say, you see where I'm going with this? So it, it was just, oh, it was so fecund, it was so fruitful. You'd all sorts of different orders and different versions. But what we're concentrating on is the constant, steady development of the religious life, of the way of perfection. And it's still there. Now, I, be, I believe the Dominicans have turned the corner. The Dominicans are attracting very bright, talented young men. In America, they're also attracting brilliant young women. The Nashville Dominican sisters have a small house where they were very cleverly invited by Bishop Leahy, a small house in Limerick. Very intellectual order. And these are the people who follow this path of perfection. So I'm saying, you know, don't feel that the only option you have if you're asking our Lord what do you want me to do like if you're a man you'll be asking well do you want me to be a priest and you might be looking doubtfully at me saying my god I could end up like him that's not the only option you had and and what I'm really saying there is that's not the only option he has because as I said before you start saying how will I serve the Lord and you discover that he has his own plan so that's the one you have to follow because you're going to be with him for all eternity, and I do advise that you start learning to work with him. Okay, you'll find it useful later. It's a good investment. The way of perfection, the way of the councils. You remember now that in Matthew chapter 19, that story about the young man, give everything you have. Okay, okay, can can I tell you a story? Tell you a little story? I remember my father telling the story of friends of his who were from the area, they were living in England. And a young man came in to visit them at the end of the summer. He was a university student from our area, but he was overworking in London for the summer. And his parents had threatened him that on no account was he to come home at the end of the summer without calling on their old friends and childhood, their childhood classmates who were living in this place. He was to call in on them and have tea with them. So they were delighted to see him, but appalled at the state of him. They had to give him, they had to run three baths, it was before showers, they had to run three baths to get the muck off him. 
because they said they would not let his mother see him like that. Very old-fashioned Irish attitude. What had he been doing? He came from a big family. His parents only had so much money to go around. And he was in university. Good-looking lad. He liked good social life. Liked to be able to take his girl out. Because in the days when that's the way lads thought. Liked to be able to take her somewhere nice. He liked to live well. He liked to dress well. As a young man will. But he had no money. You need money for this. And he couldn't go asking his parents for that. He was a very good lad. So what he did was, when friends of his were having a high old time of it in London, he went over, he had built up a relationship with one firm of builders. He would go on to their building site. He would work every hour God sent. He would work all the overtime and do all the filthy jobs that nobody else would do. He would stay for hours after everyone else had gone home. When everyone else was gone, by a, a tacit arrangement with the foreman, he would crawl in under the plastic that was covering the bags of cement. Cement is very warm. And he would sleep on the cement. In the morning, he would wash his hands and face, no more, in the water that was being used to mix the cement that was piped to the site. He would buy his breakfast from a travelling chipper that used to stop at the site. He never went out. He never took out a girl. He never went to the cinema or to the restaurant or the theatre, even though he was a young lad of civilised tastes. He was in one of the greatest cities in the world. He worked for four months unremittingly and saved all his money so that he could live like a king for the rest of the year. I always tell that story to my students. How far will you go for what you want? You know, you'd ask in class, because I used to teach, you'd ask in class, how many of you like money? Everyone put up their hand, which is fair enough. I like money. Everyone likes money. I think what we mean by that is we like nice things. Okay, we like nice things. How many of you like money a lot? Not quite everyone put up their hand. How many of you are really into money and you want to make a lot of it? And a good number of hands would still go up. How many of you are ruthless and determined to make a lot of money? And a smaller number of hands would go up. No matter what the price, the number would go down, but still some hands would go up. How many of you would work a 12-hour day, six days a week? How many of you would work a 12-hour day, seven days a week? How many of you would work in filthy and dangerous conditions? How many of you would put up with being treated like dirt by a psychopathic and cruel boss because he or she is a genius at what they do and if you can stick it out, you can go anywhere in this business. And don't tell me I'm being fanciful because I know people who've done it. A friend of mine used to be physically sick before he went into work in the morning. But he stayed with an absolute B for a few years because there was nobody like this man in the business. And eventually he ended up with his own company. There was a high price. How many are willing to do that? I'm not asking you how many of you are willing to shaft your friends, sell your granny to white slavers, all this kind of thing. It's easy to be young, bright and rather ruthless. Right, it's always easier to make other people pay for our ambitions. But are you willing to stretch out your arms on the cross of your ambition? Are you willing to be stretched on the altar of your ambition? Jordan Peterson is brilliant on this. Alpha males. Will you give up knowing your children? You know, most top executives barely know their kids. They miss all their childhoods. Their marriages often fall apart because they're, they're hardly ever home. They live with incredible stress. They have no holidays in any serious sense of thing, especially nowadays with mobile phones. Could you do that? Would you do that? Will you do that? 
Because if you're serious about following Jesus Christ, you have to do all that and more. And you won't end up with a penny or the shirt on your back. Now can you do it? There'll be homeless people better dressed. Can you do it? Because I can't. But hey, if you can, you do it for me. And here's the thing. The strictest orders are getting the vocations. The most traditional orders are getting the vocations and the others seem to have a death wish. They're folding. And I'm sorry, some people are going to be very annoyed at me for talking like this, but I'm going to repeat what I just said because I have seen it in front of me. There are some religious orders in this country that have tacitly formed among themselves, this is a social psychological phenomenon which has deep spiritual implications and they're not pleasant. A corporate death wish. They've stopped looking for novices. They're appalled then if they get novices because the kind of people you get nowadays, a novice is a starter religious, kind of people you get nowadays, the young people tend to be more traditional. They tend to be more traditional. And so the older ones make love not war, for whom Woodstock never ended, Catholic hippies who are still driving down, what's that famous route? Route 66 in the Passion Wagon. Okay, in the Volkswagen, in the Volkswagen <laughs> van, you know what I'm talking about, the flowers painted all over it. They don't want to see this, because there's something very soothing about a death wish. I've said it before, you know, the explorers said that when you've decided to fall asleep in the snow, it's not a bad way to go. You start to feel warm, but what it means that you're dying. No longer are you like Abraham, you're not willing anymore to engage with the Lord. You're not willing to engage with this terrifying Nazarene, with this obstreperous, irascible man who didn't manage to live more than three years of public ministry before his own people killed him. And he had done them no harm. So intolerable was his needling. So intolerable was his message. He called the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchres. We've talked about this before. Not because they were evil, but because they were so good and yet still missed the mark. And the core, the etymology of, as far as I remember, the Hebrew word for sin is to miss the target. It's to miss the mark. I'm telling you something, don't go for the religious life if you're going to miss the mark. Do it or don't do it. Do it or walk away from it. Be hot or cold, for if you be lukewarm, I shall spit you forth. Remember Revelation. Remember that terrifying, as Jordan Peterson has called it, that terrifying psychedelic dream <laughs> at the end of Scripture. Luther wanted to throw it out. He said a re revelation should reveal. <laughs> and it was blunt German good sense. But he was talked out of it, I think. Revelation is crucial. The great dream and the vision of the new Jerusalem. Now I'm telling you that the whole point of the religious life is that you have in front of you the telos, as Aquinas would have called it, the, the, the end point, the goal, the purpose, which informs all the rest, and that will absorb you. It will burn your life away. So if you want to go into that burning fire, know what you're doing. A relation of mine was in UCG, as it was then called in UIG in the 60s, and she remembered girls from poor villages in the west of Ireland in the 60s when the grant would come in that was keeping them in university, they would save money out of a not especially generous grant and send it home to their mothers. The telos, the point, their family came before everything. Jesus Christ must come before everything. And in turn, he will guarantee everything. You will get everything back that you have given up. But if he's calling you to this, you must answer. And you cannot turn back if he is calling you.
This calls for serious discernment because you don't want to go into this life if you're not called to it. And you'll be required, like sailing ships had to do in the middle of dangerous situations, you have to throw the ballast overboard, you have to throw the furniture overboard, throw the cannon overboard, throw everything overboard except the crew. Everything. You just have to get out of it. You have to lighten the ship at all costs. In the same way in the religious life, you have to be, you have to have that ruthlessness. The ruthlessness the entrepreneur has, the ruthlessness the businessman has, the ruthlessness of the professional gambler. When you have that gut instinct, when you realise that you're on to a sure thing, you put all your money on the horse. This is the big one. That's the religious life and it's that terrifying and it's not something you wander into because you think you might look nice in a habit. That habit refers to something, it means something. And so the great names, we roll them out. Columbanus, Benedict, Bruno, the founder of the Carthusians, Bernard, what a dude. Bernard, the founder of the Cistercians, which was one of the many reinterpretations of the Benedictine charism. Stricter, the white monks. And the Cistercians took off in Ireland and many people would say it was because the Cistercians reminded the Irish in a way of their monks before. With their asceticism, they, their architecture was notoriously uncluttered, pure, graceful, clean lines, soaring Gothic arches, no decoration. They were famous for that. They were Protestant before Protestantism. Cistercian architecture. And it's interesting is that I've noticed that Protestants seem to like monks. <laughs> I've noticed that again and again. Protestants get on with monks. <laughs> Even though they shut all the monasteries. I think it's just the same way of looking at things in a way. They, they, they both have a very emphasis on this uncluttered approach to church architecture and this, you know, simplicity and austerity. And of course the tremendous emphasis on tremendous work ethic. Yeah, the monasteries Phenomenal work ethic. The Benedictine work ethic was, uh, what is it, Benedict said, laborare est orare, to work is to pray, at least I think he said that. So the classic monastic day has been divided up into um, manual work. They all insisted on manual work. You need to be doing some manual work, very wise. Study, and then the centre of it was prayer, and the chanting of the divine office together, and of course, centering in on the mass. Now, here I'm going to be, as an old professor I had used to say, I'm going to be churlish. And I would have said that if many of the orders had stuck to what they were doing, they would be doing better now. I think for a start that it was a mistake to start chanting the office in English. I think uh, Glenn Stahl kept the office in Latin. Um, and Dom Mark Kirby and his monks in... in uh, Silverstream and this exciting new foundation in Silverstream, which is the full backing of the bishop, is a monastery centred on the extraordinary form of the Mass and the, um, the old form of the Divine Office, of the Benedictine Office. I, I just thought the Latin was more sonorous, it was more elegant, it was more beautiful. Uh, English would probably be as beautiful if we were using the English of the Book of Common Prayer or Thomas Tallis. But 
modern English, it just doesn't sound great. The modern Bible translations, I mean, the King James Bible is, a, is one of the magnificent translations of the whole world. It's a Protestant translation, like, and still I would say it, that Robert Barron loves it. I would know many devout Catholics who love the King James. They love the King James. When I was ordained, a Protestant couple I was friendly with gave me a leather-bound copy of the King James, which was a lovely gift and which I've kept. Now, the Protestant Bible isn't exactly the same as ours. It's important to remember that. It's missing a few books, but that's for another day. So we, we took that in, and, and that was a central thing the religious did, was the chanting of the office. Secular clergy have to say the office too, and lay people are starting to say it. And in the next podcast, I'm going to be talking about other ways of living the lay vocation. The new ecclesial movements and very interesting new interpretations and things that are going on. Fantastic stuff. Go to Matthew 13, 44 to 46, those two lovely parables. It's in the middle of the day of parables, so-called. And the kingdom of heaven is like, and the kingdom of heaven is like, you remember? The treasure and the pearl. And I love them. I often use these in, in sermons. It's where Jesus liked talking, comparing, using the comparison to the business people of the day. And he used to say to the disciples, look at them, look at them. They're up, they're up with the lark. They're all the time working. They're all the time, uh, they're all the time calculating the odds. They're all, they're all the time doing the numbers in their heads. And you lot are asleep. He was nicer than that, but you know what I mean? He wasn't always nice either. Nice is not a Christian virtue. <laughs> we talk about that again another time. The treasure and the pearl. And so it's like this guy, he discovers that there's a treasure in the field and nobody can figure out why he's so set on this field, but he keeps his counsel and he goes off and he sells everything he has to make the investment. And everyone is astonished, but he knows what's in the field. Now, the critics will say, the exegetes will say, that it, in, in times of turbulence, and those times were often turbulent, people had the habit of burying their valuables in fields, often not close to the house, because that's where thieves and robbers would search. So the treasure in the field and the other one right beside it is the pearl of great price. And again, the guy goes off and he sells everything he has to buy the pearl. A good business person, if they happen on an investment, will bank everything on it. If you have this reaction to the kingdom of God, which is at hand, remember, already among us, you know you're being called, you have a vocation anyway. You know, because it's by definition, that all the elect are asked, as Newman said, to do some definite service. And that if you don't do it, it won't be done. It may be done by another, but it won't be done by you, which means it won't be the same service because you are unique and you cannot be substituted for. And you were meant to do it. So it was meant to be a different thing. If you're called to that, you are called to throw everything overboard, to sell everything, to sleep on the cement, to wash under the tap in the builder's yard, you are called to bank everything on his word. Patrick Pierce actually talked in a similar way before the rising, when in his poem, The Fool, which is well worth reading, which I've often quoted. Is this my sin before me to have taken God at his word? We were told not to count. We were told, he says, not to save, but to spend. We were told to give everything. What have I done wrong? 
to give a people a nation. You go back to this, to the spiritual life. If you're called to that, you are called to the way of perfection. You will be a lay person. Even though you will be addressed as brother or sister, you will be a lay person. You are called to a life of prayer, of study, of evangelization. Even if you're a monk or a contemplative nun, like the Cistercian sisters at Glencairn or the poor Clares in Galway, you are still called to evangelization because by your example and your prayer, you evangelize without people even seeing you. So that's crucial to be aware of that because they do absolutely crucial work. They have our backs. They pray for us. And loads of people go into those contemplative monasteries and just ask the monks or the nuns to pray for them. The crucial thing here, and this is the hardest thing of all, is obedience. Not my will, but thine be done. It is what God wants you to do. Von Balthasar has said that the interesting thing about comparing, let's say, the priesthood to the religious life, and keep in mind that some religious are priests, is that the priesthood starts from sacred office, but he's, he is attracted by the councils. In other words, he's attracted by him. If he's calling you, it is obedience that you answer. The priest starts with office and he works into the life, but the one who follows the way of perfection starts with the life which may then take ecclesial form. So you may end up wearing the habit, you may end up being called brother or sister, or living in a monastery or a friary or, or whatever it is. But it started with the adoption of the life of the consuls. Simple profession, final profession, you know all this? It's an absolutely incredible thing to do, is to give everything to the Lord said he comfortably from his presbytery. Listen, we're all in the Lord's army. And a priest is a priest and it's a magnificent thing to be. But the life, as the mafia say, <laughs> this is the life we chose. That's what they say in the films. The life, that is an incredible vocation. It's an incredible, the life of the councils. Poverty, chastity, obedience. Where you walk in to the bookie's office and you take out a wad, and I mean of hundreds, and you slip the elastic band off them, and you fire them across the desk, and you say, I want the whole thing on Mayo Girl. And you put every penny you have on the horse. That's what you do on the Lord. You take your whole life, and you give it to him. And you say, do what you will with this. It's the most precious thing you have. You lose your money, you can always make more. And you still have your life. No matter what happens, you still have your life. But to hand over your life and your youth and your best years. And Pierce, and Pierce says in his poem, The Fool, proudly, I have squandered the splendid years that the Lord God gave to my youth in attempting impossible things, deeming them alone worth the toil. I have squandered the splendid years. Lord, if I had them, I would squander them again. I fling them from me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. St. Brendan, pray for us. <laughs>